You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome. My name's Robert. I'm the lead pastor. Uh, glad to see you all. There's seats up here if you guys want to come up and sit here. There's lots of, lots of space open. Don't be, don't be shy. Come on in. Uh, if you are kindergarten through sixth grade, uh, you are welcome to go down to the, to the kids' class. Uh, today's sermon is rated R, so I would highly recommend you go down to the kids' class. So, so this is the end of Judges. It felt like yet last week was the end of Judges with Samson literally bringing down the house and uh, killing all the Philistines or many of the Philistines and getting freedom for God's people. Um, but it's not the end. And so what we've seen in Judges is this downward spiral where the people of God get further and further away from God and more entrenched in false worship, resulting in them doing what's right in their own eyes. And I think when we read that as moderns, we, we might say, well, what's the big deal, right? What's the big deal of people worshiping falsely and doing what they want? I mean, isn't, isn't that sort of the modern American Dream and, and Judges says, uh, no, you do not want a society where everyone is just worshiping whatever they feel like worshiping and doing whatever is right in their own eyes. And it shows us what happens at the bottom of that spiral. So there's a setup for this story in uh, chapter 17. A guy named Micah, we really don't know that much about him, but we know that he stole some silver from his mother. Then he felt bad about it, and he fesses up, right? He's a good little boy, right? He fesses up to his mom, and he tells her, I stole your silver, Mom, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, right? Mom's excited. Wow, you know, little, little Micah, he, he's telling the truth. I mean, he did a bad thing, but he's, he's confessing his sin. So in gratitude for what Micah does, she takes the silver melts it down, creates an idol out of the silver so that they can worship the idol and celebrate her son's honesty. Micah, as a grown man, does this, Judges 17, verses 5 and 6. The man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, the writer of, of Judges letting us know this false worship kind of an experience that, that Israel is, is having is tied directly to doing what is right in your own eyes. And we might say, well, he's just saying you just worship whatever you want. That's doing what's right in your own eyes. But as we see what we just read in Judges 19, it's not just talking about worshiping whatever you want to worship. It's showing the implications of, of what does happen when a society worships falsely. Now, so hopefully you've opened up Judges 19 in your Bible, if you're not too afraid to do that. So just go ahead and open up Judges 19. It'll, it'll help you follow along. I'm going to do a lot of s summarizing here, and then we'll get down uh, to the, the latter parts of the passage. So Judges 19, the background. You've got a Levite. So a Levite is part of the, the tribe of Levi, and the, the, the men in the tri tribe of Levi are pretty much the church staff of the nation of Israel. Uh, those that are from the line of Aaron in the tribe of Levi are priests, and so they're ministering inside the tabernacle. But all the other Levites that aren't in the line of Aaron are the support staff. 
And so these folks are the closest that, that, that anyone else in the, uh, the, the nation of Israel is to the Bible. Like they, they should know the scripture, right? They, they should know what's right, what's wrong. Uh, this Levite should have read passages like Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He would have that part of the Bible. Right now they've got like six chapters of the, or six books of the Bible. And so he would have had that passage and he would have been able to read that and he would be able to know that both men and women are created in the image of God, that they have inherent worth. They are, are, are image bearers, Right? And, and so not only should he not be, he, he should be telling people that you ought not have a concubine, he himself should certainly not have a concubine. Now you say, well, what's a concubine? Well, a concubine is a slave wife. In our modern vernacular, we probably call her a sex slave. She was purchased, probably from her father, by the Levite, as his wife. Now the girl runs away. Makes sense, Right? It says she's unfaithful to the Levite in this twisted patchwork of morality. It, it, it seems to the Levite that, that the concubine who ran away and was unfaithful is the one who's unrighteous. And now the righteous Levite is going to kindly go and get his slave wife and have her return to his home. When people are doing right in their own eyes, they have a code that they've come up with, a code that justifies their own behavior and condemns the behaviors of others. And so this Levite has this code in his mind that helps him stay righteous and helps him condemn the behavior of this concubine. We see this kind of thing playing out all the time, right? We see it playing out in politics where one side blasts the other for their immoral behavior while the other side is doing the same thing, right? So it's just back and forth. Everyone seems to have their same moral code. So, now we're, look where she is. She's at home. Right? She's not in the arms of some lover. She's at home, uh, probably seeking protection. And when the Levite gets there, the father, it says, uh, he came out with joy to meet him. Now, this is kind of weird, right? Uh, he seems very excited to see the Levite. He's trying to feed him and keep him in the home and, and begging him to stay. And, and so it's hard to know exactly what's happening here. But what I think what's happening here is he, he's afraid for his daughter's life. That in this twisted code, this Levite might pull out the adultery law and say, I'm going to stone your daughter to death. She's committed adultery against me. And so he does his best to whine and dine this, this Levite and try to keep him in the household for as long as he can. In these kinds of passages, I think one, one thing that's helpful is to realize that the Bible is at times just describing events. It's not prescribing behavior, right? It's not saying this is a right thing to do. It's saying this is what happened. And so throughout, especially the Old Testament, we see things that are described but not prescribed. So this continues to be a setup for the, the, the latter part of, the, of Judges 19, and there's, there's more setup here in verse 10. The man would not spend the night. He rose up. He departed. He arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. 
He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to this young man, Come and let us draw near to one of those, these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So he re- eventually leaves the, 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 the father-in-law's house, and he's close to the city of Jebus, which the writer lets us know this will one day be Jerusalem. It should be part of the promised land. Uh, it should be part of, of what Israel has a possession of, but they haven't been faithful in, in fighting hard enough and long enough to, to, to secure Jerusalem. Uh, David will do that later. Uh, and so he says, we're not going in there because there's foreigners in there. Stranger danger, <laughs> Oh, that's a dangerous city. We can't go in there. Those Jebusites, that's a bad neighborhood, right? They're they're not us. They're not like us. We're going to go to Gibeah because that's our people. And when we get to Gibeah, our people, oh, that's safe. That's a safe city. They're going to take good care of us. They'll offer hospitality. We definitely want to keep pushing through till we get to Gibeah. So they go to Gibeah. Verse 14 they passed on, they went their way, and the sun went down on, on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there and to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Oh, they're not that hospitable at Gibeah, right? Here we got an out-of-towner, he's a sojourner. I mean, even if he was not an Israelite, he should be cared for according to Mosaic law. There's lots of stuff in the Mosaic law that would say you need to care for the sojourner, right? You were a sojourner in Egypt, so be good to the sojourners, right? And so just as a matter of following the code that they have from Moses, they ought to be bringing this sojourner in. But when you're doing what's right in your own eyes, hospitality, well, let's just be honest, it's inconvenient, You've been working hard in the field, and then there's these strangers in your court, and they want to eat your hard-earned crops and sleep in your bed. I mean, I'm not feeling it right now, right? And so suddenly, what's right in my own eyes is I'm going to ignore a person in the courtyard, and I'm going to go to sleep and eat my own food. And so they're just, they're just standing there, just waiting with nowhere to go until someone does invite them. Verse 16. Behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. It said that a couple times, right? Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where, and where do you come from? And he said to him, We're passing from Bethlehem to Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to the house of the Lord. But no one is taking me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. And so he brought him into his house and he gave the donkeys feed and they washed their feet and they ate and drank. So an out-of-towner. Right? A sojourner himself, he's, he's been living there for a while. He comes in, he sees them, and he knows what it's like to be a sojourner in Gibeah. Evidently, it's not all that great. And so he has empathy for them. 
I see something similar among international students that come in to UMass. They become a community in and of themselves, even though they're from countries from all over the world. They connect and they, and they create a community. Why? Because they know what it's like to come from the outside and try to get into the inside. And so they become, they become kind of a family with one another. And so this, this one who, who, who is an Ephraimite, he sees them and he, he brings them in. He takes care of them. He feeds them. Now, there's, there's, a, there's a building going on during this chapter, right? We have a Levite priest with a sex slave. We, ha- we have uh, a lack of hospitality in an Israelite city. And now we have been told that it's not safe to dwell in that Israelite city after dark. These are all little indicators of what society is like in this time period of Judges. And we soon find out why you should not be in the city after dark. So verse 22 As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. So a lot of drinking going on, right? Everybody's heart is merry. Uh, That's code for wasted. And so they're, they're making Mary inside this house, and then these other worthless fellows here are coming in, and, and they're having a, a, a little bit of a party, and it says, calls them the men of the city. We might expect them to be then described as the mayor, the fire chief, the clergy, but it's not. They're described as worthless fellows, and they're intoxicated, and they want to gang rape a priest, Levite, this Levite. This is the kind of town that we see, and it's a little bit of a sample. Like This is not just an isolated incident, okay? This is a little water sample in Israel. How, th- how are they going? How are things going there? As people worship falsely, and they do what's right in their own eyes. Let's take a little sample. What's that like? Here's what it's like. It's a little, a little snapshot, a little sample of how things are going. This is in stark contrast, obviously to what God had in mind when He envisioned the nation of Israel, when He gave the first five books of the Bible to Moses to order this beautiful community of faith that would then gloriously proclaim the message of the one true God to the nations. This is not at all what He had in mind when He gave that code, right? This kind of sinful depravity is of monumental proportions. And again, what you should hear in the background is false worship, doing what's right in your own eyes. The story gets worse. Verse 23, the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Okay, that's good. I'm all for that. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. The host goes out, addresses the angry, crazy, drunk crowd. Uh, We expect him to say, if you think you're coming in this house, you're going to come over my dead body. Okay? That's what we want him to say. That would be some godly masculinity, right? Some strength there. Yeah. Like, come on, be a man. But that's not what he does. He's like, here's my daughter. Here's, here's the concubine of this Levite. 
take them. And I'll be able to save my skin and save the skin of this Levite. Completely devalues these women. He obviously values his life and the life of the Levite way more than his own daughter and the life of this concubine. Now, men still do this. Every time a man looks at porn, you're doing this. You're devaluing women. You're not treating them as sisters, as daughters. You're devaluing them. Every time a man puts pressure on a woman to have sex with him, devaluing her, treating her as an object. Obviously, men who go so far as to rape women, this is devaluing them, creating an object out of someone who is to be a daughter, to be a sister, to be an image bearer. Women can tend to play into this role and, and actually feed the fire of having themselves objectified, right? Posting a sexualized selfie to try to get attention and likes. Ladies, that's beneath you. You are a daughter. You are a sister. You are an image bearer. So I know we look at this story and we think, oh, man, we're so far from that. We're not that far from that. There's parts of us, there's parts of our culture where we do this kind of devaluing of human beings. And why do they do this? They do this because they're worshiping falsely and they're doing what's right in their own eyes. And it's this slow progression, this slow spiral. You don't even know it's happening. And the wheels are completely coming off. Of, of this society. So the host's plan doesn't work. He, he hopes to offer up these women and they won't listen to him. Verse 25. So the man, kind of in desperation, seizes his concubine, made her go out to them. They knew her husband, knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as Morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. One commentator calls this a text of terror. And indeed it is. This poor woman forced out into this mob of drunken gang rapers, raped over the entire night. We hear stories of this and it makes our stomach turn. There's something especially heinous of a crime that is both sexual and violent. It is absolutely horrific. But then again, the, the culture that we live in has taken sex and violence and kind of created it as a turn-on. Right? The pornification of our culture is such that sex and violence have somehow been twisted together. We're not that far, okay? I know we want to take Judges 19 and go, man, I can't believe it. We're just not that far away from it in our culture. It gets worse. Verse 27, the master rose up in the morning when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way. Behold, there was the concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. 
And then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. To me, this is the most troubling part of the passage. The Levite is absolutely unfazed. He seemed that he was fine with the concubine being offered to the, drink, uh, the drunk mob. He hasn't checked in with her throughout the night. He walks out on the front porch. He sees what's happened. She's obviously bloodied, battered, bruised. And he says, get up. Let's go. We're on a schedule. He has no empathy for her at all. She's a daughter. She's a sister. She's a human. He has absolute no empathy for what this woman has been through. It reminded me of 1 Timothy 4, Paul's writing about the downward spiral of human sin. He says, The Spirit expressly says that in later times there will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's what it made me think of. That's the searing of, of the conscience, right? Have this sensitivity to sin and its effects, and, and uh, sometimes through sin and ongoing exposure to that, we experience a searing of that conscience. If you, if you sear something, it's like you burned it, the nerve endings are damaged, there's a scar tissue over that place that's been burned, and you can't feel anything. And that's what he's saying, that, that this can happen to the human soul. You can't feel anything. You, you can't see what's right and wrong. And if you do, you don't really care. And this is what we see in this Levite who's supposed to be an expert on God's Word and be leading God's people in God's ways. And so there's this, this need to awaken Israel, to, to raise awareness, right? I feel like in, in our context, we do kind of get this, right? We get that human beings can be blind and ignorant to things in their lives that are wrong, and we want to raise awareness, and so we do different things to try to, to raise the awareness around certain issues, whether it be racism or sexism or destruction of the environment, right? We want people to know, and so we seek to sort of prick their consciences so that they would be aware, and they would actually do something about the wrongs that they don't see or they don't care about. So the Levite does something to raise awareness. Verse 29. When he entered the house, he took a knife, taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb from limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. All who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So he chops her up. Now, she seems to have been dead, okay? So that's part of it. She's dead. Uh, He decides he wants to send a message to the nation of Israel. And so he uses this shock effect to get them to pay attention. Imagine a messenger coming to your tribe. Hey, got a message from Levite so-and-so. Oh, really? Oh, great. Okay, gather around. What you got in the bag there? Putrefied body part. What? Oh, my gosh, what? What's that about? I'm glad you asked. And they tell the story. Here's what's happened. And they awaken. But it takes that to awaken them out 
of their slumber that's occurred in the book of Judges. Again, it says such a thing has never happened and been seen. That has happened, though. It's a water sample, right? This stuff has happened, but they didn't see it or they didn't care. And as, as this shock kind of a message comes to them, they then wake up to the fact that this kind of thing is wrong. We've seen this happen throughout our history here in, in the U.S. The civil rights era comes to mind. One of the things that pricked the consciences of uh, white folks in, in America was the pictures of the civil rights uh, protests of fire hoses being used to, to push back protesters, of angry you know, dogs biting at younger people, of cigarette butts being pressed into the flesh of those that were doing the lunch counter sit-ins. And as they saw that, it pricked their consciences, and they realized, we've got to do something about that. A few weeks ago, uh, a, a dead sperm whale washed up on the beach. We had 64 pounds of plastic bottles inside of it. Right? That's actually not the actual whale. It's actually a reenactment of that whale by Greenpeace. Why did they do that? They did that to try to shock people, right? You're drinking your plastic bottle water. Like, this, this matters. This, 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 this is doing something to destroy the environment, right? And then a bunch of people reposted that picture as the real whale. So anyway, see it on, it's not the real whale. Um, but, it, but it is, it's something that's, that's, that's a shock kind of message to get people to, to wake up to something that's happening that needs to be changed. Pro-life activists, I don't have any pictures for this, but we'll show baby parts sometimes from uh, abortions to wake people up, the savagery of abortion. So Israel's conscience is pricked. Judges 20, we see the result. The people of Israel come out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah, and the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the God, of, of the assembly of the people of God, four hundred thousand men on foot that drew the sword. This is the highlight of Judges right here. They have not been unified as a country the entire book of Judges, really. A little bit at the beginning, but not like this. And they're not just assembled. In, in, in horizontal fashion, as, as people that want to fight something, but they're assembled unto the Lord. Right? They understand this has a vertical component. There, there needs to be a return to the one true God and the worship of that God. And it also has a horizontal component where they come back together as a community. And they're coming together to fight and to, to avenge this woman's death. And they, in the, if you read the rest of that chapter, you'll see they have a lot of casualties. And they keep going back to God. Should we keep going? Yes. And they go at it again. More casualties. They keep going back to God. Should we keep going? Yes. They fight some more. More casualties. And they pay a high price to avenge this woman's death. And what precipitates this repentance? A violent, bloody death of an innocent. That's what precipitates it. A death that we look at and we say, My God, my God, how could you forsake that woman? How could you do it? That kind of death, that's what precipitates 
the repentance of the entire nation of Israel. Her death becomes a catalyst for at least the temporary reconciliation of God's people with himself and their reconciliation with each other. This horrendous act becomes a gospel-preaching moment. I mean, would, would God ask someone to go through that kind of, a, uh, of an atrocity to preach the gospel? He would. He would. Helen Rosevere was a medical missionary in the, Congos, in, in the Congo in, in the 50s and 60s. And as a, as a medical missionary, uh, part of what she went through was being imprisoned, and she was raped twice. One of those was a gang rape. She writes about this in some of her books. She says, On that dreadful night, beaten and bruised, terrified and tormented, unutterably alone, I felt at last God had failed me. Surely He would, could have stepped in earlier. Surely things need not go, have gone that far. I'd reached what seemed to be the ultimate depth of despairing nothingness. I read that. I thought that... I'm pretty sure the concubine that in this Judges 19 could have written that same thing. But she prays to God in that despair, in that darkness, and she relays her experience of that prayer. She says uh, that God said back to her, You asked me when you were first converted for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want it? These are not your sufferings, they're mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. She goes on to write, Through the brutal, heartbreaking experience of rape, God met with me with outstretched arms of love. It was an unbelievable experience. He was so utterly there, so totally understanding. His comfort was so complete. And suddenly I knew, I really knew that His love was unutterably sufficient. He did love me. He did understand. And, and why, why, would he, why would he ask someone to do that, right? Is, is the gospel really worth that much? Yes. It is. It is. And how could it be this valuable? Because God's divine Son, a true innocent, died a bloody, torturous, awful Death, a death that you look at and say, my God, my God, how, how could you forsake your one and only son? And his answer would be, because this is the only way to awaken you and me. That we would have stayed in the depths of our sin, blind, ignorant, apathetic, if it was not for the death of Christ on the cross, and it's through that death that we're given grace and we wake up and we repent. And so again, the, the woman's death in Judges 19 be, becomes the most powerful pre-preaching of the gospel message. And so one of the responses to this Sermon is to respond by putting faith in Christ this morning. This is what it's going to take to save you. Is the death of God's one and only Son on the cross. 
who was innocent. He did not deserve that death, but died that death in your place. And when you receive that by faith, you're forgiven, you're brought into relationship with God, you're reconciled with God and with others through that cross. So if you haven't done that, or maybe you've been coming all semester and you've been thinking about it, do it today. Receive Christ by faith. This is the, the worth of what has been offered to you. This is not just a little value add. Oh, Jesus, help me out a little bit so I can have a nicer life. No, this is your only hope of being saved from sin. Number two, worship Jesus. Worship Jesus. This story should call us to worship Jesus. Jesus is the hero of judges. We've been, we've been watching how, how judges pre-preaches the gospel. It points forward to Christ over and over and over and over again. Every human problem stems in false worship. And we cannot be saved from that until we're saved by the grace that comes from the cross. But when we are saved, now we're true worshipers. We can truly worship the one true God. And so as, as we reflect on the goodness of the gospel message, let us respond by worshiping Jesus. And then number three, God sees the horrible things that happen on this earth. He sees them. Some people think the Bible is this like sanitized book full of sappy, inspirational stories. I hope I've destroyed that myth today. It's about real life. It's about the parts of life that we'd like to relegate to our nightmares. And the Bible brings those things front and center. Now, it's not every chapter. I'm really grateful for that. I think quiet times would be very hard if that was the case. But he, in, in certain parts of the Scripture, he brings your worst nightmare and he brings it out into the light. And we get to see it. He knows that stuff exists. He sees those things. And even though those men did not see the precious life of that woman... God saw it. God saw it. He even preserves her story in sacred Scripture. Here we are, 2018. We're talking about this woman. And she, she's a hero that pre-preaches the ultimate hero, Jesus. And I'm fairly certain she, she's in heaven. She's looking down and she's saying, it was worth it. He's that good. This gospel is that good of news. It's worth it. It's worth whatever it takes. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely certain. Helen Roosevelt, she's now passed away. She said, it was worth it. Jesus is so glorious. He's so good. And the gospel message is such good news. It was worth it. And so God sees those things. And, and he... he, he Weaves them into his redemptive story. Do we always understand it? No. No. It's, always, it's not going to always make sense. It's going to be confusion. There's going to be a whole lot of mystery in it. I don't want to make just sort of a trite cliche, just kind of gloss over all the hard stuff in the world. But he is, he's weaving this into his redemptive story. Some of you have been through trauma. You've been into some, in some dark places. You thought... That God wasn't there. He thought he didn't see you. He did. He did. 
And he invites you this morning to bring that trauma to the feet of the cross where he himself was traumatized. I mean, think about it. When we come to this table, remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night before his death, he takes bread, he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples. He's saying, take, eat. This is my body. Except he's not a a victim. He's going to go to the cross the next day by his own will. And he's going to let himself be traumatized. And why would he do that? For you and me. He knows that is the only thing that's going to save us from our sin. The only way we're going to wake up to that reality and our need for a Savior. In the same way, he takes the cup. After he blessed the cup, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He lets them know that not only is this death going to reconcile us with God, but it's going to reconcile us with one another in a covenant community. And so all of us, as we, as we come to the cross and we bring our darkest moments, things that have been done to us, things that we have done, and we bring those to the cross to be forgiven and washed clean and, and given new life in its place. And that new life is now, and that new life is forevermore. That's the good news. So again, receive that this morning, perhaps for the first time. If you've received that already, let's worship Jesus for what he's done to awaken us. Let's pray. God, you are good. Lord, help us to understand that as we look at this passage through the lens of the gospel. Help us to see how good you you truly are and that the ultimate expression of that is your cross. Thank you, Lord, that you are still waking people up to the realities of their sin, their need for a Savior, and then meeting those sinners with grace. So as we receive this bread and receive this cup, Lord, we celebrate that and we respond to this great gift by worshiping you with our hearts, minds, souls, and strengths. Lord, please bless the bread, bless the cup in this time that we have together. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.